We believe that alcoholism is a disease and that Alcoholics Anonymous is one solution to that disease. I'm here to bring you the voices of its members. Everyone that comes on the show, including myself, is an active member and has found recovery in the rooms of AA. As you listen, please take what works for you and leave the rest. Good afternoon. My name is Carla Malden, and I'm a recovering alcoholic, and I can toss in a whole long list of other recoverings, such as recovering from eating too many almonds, recovering from too much coffee, recovering from uh, too much thinking. The list can go on. So there's no question whatsoever that I fit the, I'm in recovery, and the 12 steps have been the vehicle that I have used to save my life and probably to save the life of of the people around me because at one time I had a temper that could get pretty uh, loud and not terribly violent but uh, angry enough that it's a good thing I found the program. I've been sober for 35 years. My sobriety date is January 27th, 1987. That's continuous sobriety from everything except the foods I've listed. Sober from prescription pills that I abuse, sober from marijuana, and sober from alcohol. The rest of the things are either I've never done them or mm, I've had a few slips or two there. But the ones that really matter, the ones that are the never ever do's, I have managed to be sober with the grace of God, my higher power, my angels, and the people I choose to surround myself with each and every day. I have a sponsor. Her sponsor just passed away, so she's in the process of looking for another sponsor. I have sponsees. Uh, that I work with on a weekly basis, and some more frequent than that. And I have people that I talk to just because we talk. And they aren't necessarily sponsors, but we call each other because we care about each other's lives. So I think that I've covered most of the things. I regularly go to AA meetings. I toss in an Al-Anon meeting every so often. And my dearest friend that I have lunch with every week is in Al-Anon. And our third friend that used to join us until she passed away this year was a double winner in Al-Anon and AA. So I think I cover the bases with the uh, programs that mean something to me and that have worked for me. Uh, And I live with it. Well, we don't identify other people as alcoholics, but if we didn't, I might call him one. But he, as far as living with someone that's an alcoholic, we've come to a lovely place. So most of the time, we get along very well. And I have learned, which I will share later in our talking today, a few techniques I've learned for living with those of us that have addictive personalities. Hopefully, that will be of use to you as you work your program as well. 
I think I've covered the others. If I've not, haven't, Tara will let me know somewhere along the line, or they'll come up with my story as I share it. I got sober, not because I wanted to, but because I got kicked out of an AA meeting. That's what finally brought me into the place where I had to seriously look at myself and all I had learned while attending AA. But that will come in a little bit later. I'll just give you a little bit of a tease that I got kicked out of AA. My family was a lovely family in most places. Anyone from the outside would have said it was the perfect place to grow up then. My father was a doctor. My mother didn't work any pay job or any regular hour job, although she did work at the office to help out with the bookkeeping and to help the receptionist whenever they needed. And if they needed an extra nurse because one was out sick or on vacation, mother would fill in for that as well. So she was around a good share of the time. Money, you wouldn't think it would have been an issue. Dad certainly made enough money as a doctor, but uh, Dad had not grown up without any money, and he felt that since he had it now, he was entitled to spend it. So I grew up hearing fighting all of the time about money. Oh, my goodness, the fightings that my parents had over money were scary. And I remember being in my bedroom, their favorite place to fight was at the door going down to the barn, which was opposite my bedroom door. And I could hear them fighting. And I'd cover my head with the, the blankets and cry. And then every so often I'd hear their words clearly enough that I would say, why can't they stop and listen to each other? They're saying the same thing. They're fighting. They're not listening to each other. They're saying the exact same thing. We're spending too much money. We need to cut our spending back. Of course, Dad wanted Mother to spend, cut her spending back, and Mom wanted him to cut his spending back. And I was on Mom's side because her spending included me. That's, <laughs> that's another issue. At any rate, so I grew up in a family with a lot of fighting. There was absolutely no alcohol. I would say there was no alcohol in the house, but mother loved to pull little jokes. And we were raised Seventh-day Adventists, which do not drink alcohol along with lots of other do's and don'ts, uh, mainly don'ts. We did have cooking sherry in the house. That I thought was disgusting, but it was fine in the cooking. And we had cream de mint. Mother's favorite thing to do when cooking was to make cream de mint sherbet balls. So she would take pineapple sherbet, let it soften up, pour some cream de mint in it, mix it all in, and then refreeze it into balls. And then she'd serve that in her pretty green ice cream dishes and serve it to the minister when he came over for Sabbath dinner after the sermon. And she just loved that she was pulling over, giving the minister and his family alcohol, and he didn't know it, and she thought that was just the best joke. And of course, I thought it was wonderful, too, and I managed to have a few sips of just straight cream de mint on my own while it was being made. So I started out tasting alcohol very young. 
five, maybe three, four years old. Uh, no, it was older than that because it wasn't in that house. It was in a, a house that we moved into when I was six. So I started doing that when I was six. Like, that's more respectable. At any rate, <laughs> I started off uh, tasting it then and thinking about how fun it was to pull a joke over on someone. So alcohol had an early fun, entertainment, sneakiness, naughtiness, all of those kind of things that was very appealing to me. It made me feel grown up. It made me feel fun and funny and things that my mother did. And I adored my mother. And so it wasn't that anything was wrong with it at all, even though I was taught that raw, that drinking alcohol was wrong. But since mom did it, it couldn't be, it couldn't be wrong. So that was kind of the environment that I grew up in. I had an older sister that she went away to college by the time I was six. She was 11 years older than I am and had skipped a couple of grades. So she went away to college fairly young. And I was left living at the house by myself, the only child. So I was an only child some of the time. She'd come home for a vacation. When she was around, when I was very young, she used to chase me and pinch me and tease me. But as I grew up, she started taking me with her and her friends to places and treating me as one of the one of her friends with her. The story that I remember the best was she did something. I have no idea what it was, but I'd been sent along as her chaperone. And whatever she did, I came home and told on her. She got in trouble. She washed my mouth out with that because I told on her. So the next day, I told on her again. That night, she washed my mouth out with soap again. I've never told on her since. So I became the best chaperone possible. And with doing that, I went water skiing with her. I went camping. I went snow skiing. I was just the best. And all her friends liked me. And most of her friends, most of the time, there was no alcohol. Towards the very end of that, after she and her husband had finished medical school and they were living there on their own, alcohol started coming into the house. And once more, I saw alcohol as being fun and grown up and a little bit naughty, but still having so much fun. I didn't drink while they did. Maybe when we were out water skiing, I might have had a sip of their beer on a very hot day. But for the most part, I didn't like beer. So I don't remember drinking very much around them. But I remember thinking it was really great. And I couldn't wait until I was a grown up so I could do it. When I hit puberty was probably when the addictive aspect of my personality came to the foreground. My family didn't think that, you know, you could be angry, you could be happy, you could be laughing a lot, you could have any emotion except sadness. And as I said, my dad had come from a poor family, and he believed we had it too good to be sad. So anytime I'd start to cry about something, it was stop crying or I'll give you something to cry about. Oh, God, did I hate that statement. I swore I'd never say it to my child. And I don't think I ever did. 
crossed my mind a few times, but I don't think I actually said it. That was just awful. And the more he'd say it, the more I'd cry. It was scary because his spankings weren't just little pats. He was, as, as much as he got angry and as much as there was rage, his rage could go beyond just simply reasonable spanking. And in those years, I guess I didn't say my age at the beginning. I'm 77 now. So in the ages when I was in my early elementary years up to about 12 years old, spankings were considered appropriate. After that, not so much. And I got my fair share of them. Most of my spankings were reasonable. I got a couple of them, though, that if they happened in our current times, he probably would have been put in jail for them because they were so over the top. I was spanked because I'd forgotten left the fence down and the horse got loose. We caught the horse, so you know, no harm, no foul, in my opinion. But even with friends at the house at the time, he took out the rawhide horse whip and whipped me across the back of my legs, leaving well. So you didn't want to upset my father. Uh, he could get very angry, and he was nothing compared to his father. So, you know, the uh, behaviors and the sins of the family and the generation certainly played out in my family. My grandfather had been an alcoholic. I never knew him as an alcoholic, but Grandma gave him an ultimatum when my dad was born. He was born in the middle of seven children, and she said that if he didn't stop drinking, she was going to move the four children that she had out and he was leaving and she was getting a divorce. So he stopped drinking. But that was long before Bill and Dr. Bob came along. So he became a dry drunk, as we call them oftentimes now. And the rage never changed, according to my cousins and my aunts and uncles. I didn't live in Washington State, so I didn't see that. He was always wonderful to me when he'd come down to California or I would go up for a holiday. But when my dad was a kid, the beatings were frequent and uh, ferocious. I'm sure in his eyes, mine wasn't all that much. But to me, it was horrific, especially in front of my friends. So there was a lot of fear as well as the anger. There was also fear that my parents would get divorced. I never heard them threaten divorce, but their fights were so intense that it felt like they would get divorced. Later on, my mother, in talking to me, and she made me her confidant, you don't talk about your husband to your friends. He's the good doctor in town, and you have to keep that image as that's what it is. So she talked to me because I was safe to talk to. You didn't go to a psychologist back then it, because it just wasn't done. And she did talk to one doctor friend, and the doctor friend said, well, Dorothy, if you want, you can confront Dr. Carl about his behavior. But if you do, he'll probably have a heart attack and die, and it'll be your fault. So, uh, you know, you can choose to live with it or you can choose to have him die. I just can't even imagine someone saying that. But that's what she was told, and that's what she believed. So I became the confidant and the person that she told all of his antics to. And uh, he was quite the philanderer. 
My father was extremely handsome. Up to the day he died, he was extremely handsome. And mother was a beautiful woman. They were very much sought after in the community, in their crowd of friends. People gravitated around them, especially they gravitated around my father. He was the life of the party. If you heard laughing anywhere, my dad was in the center of it. I have a lot of that and some of his behaviors as well. I have both of their behaviors. Some of them I think I'm extremely lucky to. Others, uh, man, if I had to work on them. But that's probably true of all of us. And so at 11 years old, puberty hit me. And what joy. Puberty and PMS and all of that kind of ugly stuff. I would cry. Something would upset me, hurt my feelings, and I would start crying. And if Dad was anywhere around, it was, again, the stop crying or I'll give you something to cry for. And if Mother was just there, she would give me a quarter grain phenobarb that she had gotten from my dad's medicine cabinet at the office. Because back then, doctors carried not just samples that they got from the drug dealers, uh, drug companies, I guess we should call them, but got them from the, had them as a supply. So if he was going to give a prescription to someone, he would fill that prescription there in the office unless it was some unusual drug that he needed the person to take. So mom had access to the sample closet and the, the pill closet, both of them as well. And she started off giving me quarter grain peanut bar whenever I would get upset. Well, I quickly learned you medicate feeling and things get much better. Everyone's happy with you. I felt good. And life was just a lot easier when I took the quarter grain peanut bar. In my story, pills play a part. While they were the first thing that I really took and any regularity, uh, besides the you know, a tiny bit of the alcohol and cream to mint, it was something that I took for relief. It gave me a feeling that I wanted. Pills play a part in my story, but they were easier to quit than alcohol was. Alcohol, and one of the reasons I call myself an alcoholic, as my primary disease, is that it was the hardest one for me to give up. It was the last one that I gave up. And I fought giving it up harder than anything else. And yet I did probably the least amount when I actually got sober. Funny how those things can work out that way at times. Not always, but at times. So from the quarter-grain phenobarb, keeping those moods under control, life was pretty good until mother and dad's fighting just got to the place that it was intolerable. So I choose to, chose to go away to boarding school. Boarding school, while it was not someplace I particularly wanted to go, was so much better than home. When I came home, the rules at boarding school were so much stricter than my parents had ever been that home was wonderful. I was only there for a week at most, sometimes just a weekend or a three-day weekend. And with that short of time, everyone was on their good behavior. So it was nice to be home. I'm sure that I got along better with my parents because I spent time at boarding school and didn't spend that much time during my teenage years at home. It just made being at home a lot easier. At boarding school, 
I was quite popular. And because all of us did exactly the same thing, we all had the same rules, I really felt a part of boarding school. Oh, there were a few people that I thought were better than me or had life easier than me. But for the most part, I was right in the middle. People sought me out. I was living my senior year in the best room in the dormitory and friends with the girls living in the other best room in the dormitory. And when anything fun was going on, you knew that I was in the center of all of it. There was no question, but I was one of the popular girls and one of the girls that when anything fun was happening, there Carla was in the middle of it all. So boarding school worked. At home, not so much prior to then. We lived in San Bernardino in Southern California, an inland town. And I went to school at Loma Linda, a Seventh-day Adventist school that was about eight miles away from our house. It took a half an hour to get there because we had to drive around the air base that was stationed out there, Norton Air Base. So it was a long drive every day to and from school. If I'd been a bird, I could have uh, made it much faster. That was when I started feeling different and not quite belonging to the group. With living so far away, most of the kids that went to Loma Linda School lived in Loma Linda. So they played with each other at night after school. I went home to San Bernardino, and since we lived a ways out in San Bernardino with the ranch, I didn't have friends to play with that I went to school with. There were a couple of boys in the neighborhood, and I had a couple of boy cousins that rented the little house on the back of our property, but I did not have any girlfriends in the neighborhood. You know, people came to our house because we had a swimming pool. So I always knew that there'd be people at the house, people to play with, but for the most part, they were all boys. If there were girls, they didn't stay very long. Maybe the boys were too rough for them. I don't know. Don't really remember it much. What I remember is all the guys that were there. So I learned to play with boys very young. I learned to flirt, and I always had at least one of them as a boyfriend. But that life was completely separate from school life. So when I'd go to school the next day, it was, what happened? Who's talking to who? Who's in a fight with which person? And I always felt like I was kind of on the outside. They'd tell me, and by middle of the day, I was right in the middle of everyone. But it always was this not quite belonging. And the same thing when I went home and played with the friends at home. They played at the house, and we did uh, wrestling and tussling, and we played cowboys and Indians, and we had our BB guns that we'd go out and shoot at the uh, gophers and the snakes that were around. And we had the horses, and we all went horseback riding. If you didn't have a horse, you rode double behind someone. But I had horses, and we had extra horses usually. So I always had things for people to do. So I never knew if I was popular because of me or just because of the things I had at the house. But I, I did have people that I played with. But they didn't know anything about what had happened in the day, what teacher was crummy, what teacher was wonderful, who was whose boyfriend. So I had two separate lives. 
that feeling of not quite belonging has been a pervasive feeling in my life. And certainly one, once I found alcohol, that I used alcohol to help me with that, get over that feeling. So I understand how people use shyness, although I've never thought of myself as a shy person. But I understand how you would use alcohol to get over those feelings of shyness or inadequacy or any of those kind of things that interfere with being in the middle of the social aspect, because I certainly had that too with it not being a part of. It was hard. It was amazingly hard not to be a part of. And as an adult, I look at that and with using the steps in my program and being so involved with my group and with being involved with service, I have a hard time sometimes remembering that feeling. And yet it doesn't take many uh, thinking about the stories and I can be right back in the middle of it being hard. And when I think about when I drank, the wanting to be in the middle of whatever was happening, needing some alcohol or needing some marijuana or needing one of my pills to get right back in the middle. So it was a pervasive feeling that has stayed there. And now I use my steps and it doesn't take me but a few minutes to get over that feeling. Almost sometimes it has a feeling of inadequacy. You look at what I do and you say, inadequacy, how could that even be a feeling that would ever come near Carla? And yet it does. That looking at our insides versus looking at our outsides uh, is a, a strong feeling that I deal with even still. But I have steps now that I know what to do with. And I have a program that tells me what to do when that feeling comes along. So that was primarily my experience during elementary school, early childhood, and high school. I graduated top in the class. School was easy for me for the most part. I memorized very easily. I read things and took notes, did my homework, and I got pretty close to straight A's throughout school. I remember one time coming home with a report card. I think it was in fourth grade. I was terrified I'd get in trouble because I had an F in citizenship. And the reason I had the F was I talked too much and I was caught chewing gum too many times. And I remember saying to my mother, is dad going to be angry with me? And you know, angry with me meant some kind of a whipping or beating. And she laughed and she said, absolutely not. With straight A's, there's no way he's going to be upset with you. Uh, and with the things that you got the demerits in to give you an F in citizenship, they're laughable. So the discipline that was given to me at school, if you can call that discipline, my parents thought was funny. When I got in trouble in boarding school, it was for things that I could have done at home, so they thought it was funny. As long as I was making straight A's, behavior demerit. And those kinds of things, trying to correct my behaviors, were looked at as funny. There was one time when I was in trouble at school, and so my sister came up and took me out and took me to an opening of Bullock's Wilshire. It's now called Macy's, but the big department store, and it was elegant back then. 
she took me to the opening with my mother's credit card, and we bought whatever we thought we wanted. We had so much fun, and I came back loaded with Bullock shopping bags and a note from my sister on her husband's prescription pad saying that I had been to her husband as the doctor that I'd gone to visit. So my whole day of punishment was excused with a shopping trip. I never saw a doctor at all. I just had his, she just had his prescription pad. Behaviors were treated lightly. Consequences for things that my parents didn't think were bad were treated very lightly. What they thought were bad, oh my goodness, the hammer would come down. So some of my thinking of what was good and not good was a bit warped with growing up. Some of it I still think is about right. So following high school, I went to the only college that we even considered. I had grades good enough. I could have probably gone to any college I wanted. But I was raised a very good Seventh-day Adventist and Seventh-day Adventist go to Seventh-day Adventist school. So I went to La Sierra College there in Riverside, the college my sister had gone to. So, of course, I went there. The first year, my freshman year, instead of living in the freshman dorm, I lived in the upperclassmen dorm because the dean in the freshman dorm had been one of my deans when I was at boarding school, and I didn't like her. So my parents knew enough people in the right places to pull strings. My mother knew the dean in the upper-class dorm. The president of the college had been a family friend. So I got to live in the the upper-class dorm. They didn't scrutinize the sign-out pad as closely as they would have if I'd been in the freshman dorm. So I was able to get out and do single dating. In the freshman dorm, you had to do double dating. So I did a lot of dating that I would not have been allowed to do if I'd lived in the correct place. That allowed me to go out with a man that I'd had a crush on, oh, since grade school. And he was in graduate school, so he was five years older than me, five, six years older. But he'd gone to the same church, so I knew him. And I flirted with him there on campus. He ended up asking me out. Our date was to go to a winery in Cucamonga, which was the town close to San Bernardino. It's become quite a nice little community now with wine growing and wineries and tastings and all of that sort of thing. But back then, it was definitely out of the way, and you almost had to know about it, but it had wine. And the wine that it did was mainly wine that they used for the Catholics and the Episcopal for when they drank wine in their sacraments. But we tasted the wine, and we ended up getting some sweet wine and drinking it. And I knew we were going to do that, so I had bought some pretty crystal glasses to drink in. Because, of course, that was more fun to have the nice glasses than the paper cups. And we bought a bottle. We were parked out under the trees, the eucalyptus trees, drinking this bottle of wine. It was the sweetest wine. Ugh, thinking back to it now, it was disgusting even at the first taste. But between the two of us, we almost finished off the bottle. And pretty soon, 
I started getting nauseated and the stomach started roaring and tumbling. And all of a sudden, it all came up. Oh, God, it was disgusting. And how embarrassing to be with someone I had a crush on and to throw up while sitting in his car. Well, I got my head outside of the car. But nevertheless, first date and, oh, my, was I embarrassed. Managed to stay fairly clean, get my face cleaned up. And I vowed I would never drink sweet wine again. Where have I heard that we vowed to stop drinking various things and changed from one type of drink to another? Uh, That was me right from the very beginning of when I drank a lot. I didn't drink much after that. It was kind of the one-time experience. But it didn't turn me off to the idea of drinking. It didn't turn me off to the idea of wine. It turned me off to the idea of sweet wine. It was the sweetness that was the problem, certainly not the wine. So that was really the start of my finding wine because we had so much fun. We were laughing and giggling, and he liked me. And, oh, that was wonderful for this man that I had such a crush on to, to be to like me. Oh, my goodness. And, of course, I was ready to marry him on the spot. Fortunately, he wasn't ready. So uh, (laughs) it did not work out. Uh, I have no idea what's happened to Ken. But I can still look at his picture in the yearbook and my heart can flutter. I had such great fantasies about him. So that went on with high school. With college, I didn't drink much more. Maybe every once in a while somebody had something that we had to drink. But for the most part, everybody was Seventh-day Adventist. It was against the religion. So there wasn't wine around. Once in a while, uh, one of the boys would get a great idea of putting the fruit juice, the canned fruit juice, on the window ledge and leave it for several days to ferment. And then we'd take it to a party and just think it was so much fun that with these maybe two little cans of alcohol, uh, fermented fruit juice that we were getting drunk. We weren't anywhere near drunk. I don't even know that we had a a giggle on. I think we were giggling more at the thought of it than the alcohol content. But it was the idea that we were having fun doing something naughty that was more than any part of it. It really wasn't until I got divorced. I got married before I finished college. We moved back to Massachusetts. That was where my husband's art teacher was going to work. So we followed him back to Massachusetts after we got married. And I finished college in a Seventh-day Adventist school in Massachusetts. And for once, my being the unusual person, being the one that didn't live around, worked in my favor. I was the crazy Californian that wore sandals uh, in November because it was a sunny day. Who knew that sunny days in Massachusetts meant that it was also still cold. You look at the calendar to decide whether it's cold back east. We're here in Southern California. We look at the sky to tell us whether it's cold or not. So I stood out on campus, uh, a crazy Californian. But that also allowed me to be seen as someone that they chose to be their yearbook editor my senior year. I became an important person on campus. And Everybody knew me, even though I lived in the village. So technically, it would be not in the dorm, and I wouldn't know as many people. But because I was doing the yearbook, everybody knew me. I really felt 
powerful, a part of, and it really worked for me. I was quite happy going there. Aside from missing my family and getting homesick every once in a while, it was a wonderful experience. Especially since I knew that I was going back to California. So when the hot humidity hit, I could make it through. Or when I wore sandals into Boston in November and practically got frostbite, I knew it wouldn't be long that I lived in that kind of temperature and I'd be going back to California and it all would be okay. College worked for me. And we went to a couple of parties where there was alcohol, but most of the time we were so poor that it was all we could do to scrape up the coins from turning soda bottles in to get enough money to go to a movie, let alone any alcohol. That was a rarity. So it was easy for it to be a non-issue. Came back to California and had a baby, and I really didn't want to work. I wanted to be like my sister and my mother and stay home and raise my baby. But I married a man that was an artist, and he didn't really want to work at anything except a job that fit his particular artistic talent. And, of course, there weren't any such thing. His lack of responsibility was getting to me, and my parents were supporting me. Uh, supporting all three of us. And that just didn't sit well because I had a degree. My parents had sent me to college. I'd gotten a degree with the idea that if I ever had to work, I'd have something that I could work. So I got a job teaching school in Garden Grove. I was teaching kindergarten. And my husband decided, that's probably the wrong word. I guess the decided is decided to tell me. But he told me that he had gotten involved with men and that he couldn't give them up. And while he loved me, he had to be with men. Well, you talk about attacking the ego. I was just blown away. First thing I asked was to go to therapy with him. I thought he needed therapy. Little did I know that that really isn't the answer. This was back in 1970. Who knew anything about it at that time? I knew that homosexuals existed because we had an, such a cliche. Our interior decorator at my mother's house was gay. But beyond that, I knew people at the Light Opera Association uh, doing light operas, musicals, that there were a few people that were gay. My dad started the Light Opera Association in San Bernardino, so we were frequent behind-the-stage visitors. And I knew some of them were gay, but it really wasn't something I knew very much about, certainly nothing I understood, beyond the fact that I knew that I would not live that way, that that was completely unacceptable for me, and it was unacceptable to raise my daughter that way. So I asked for a divorce when my daughter was five months old. And I raised my daughter as a single mother, working mother. And thank goodness I had the degree in education so that I could get a teaching job here in California. And while it wasn't a good living, it was an adequate living. I remember the first year, my salary for the year was $6,900 for the whole year. But it managed to support us, and I didn't have to have money from my parents anymore. 
which was very important to me that I be independent. I'd made the decision to get married early. I'd made the decision to marry the man I had, although I recognize now that a lot of his characteristics were the exact opposite of my father, and I was so angry with my father for his behavior that I married someone that was the antithesis of him. That's not true with my second husband, but certainly with my starter husband, it was uh, the antithesis. With being divorced, I think the first thing I found out about was Parents Without Partners. And I jumped into that organization with both feet. I was the, uh, I don't even remember what we called them, whether they were presidents or chairmen or leaders or what the title was, the person that was in charge of a small group. I was certainly one of those people. I was never at the big level, but at the small level, I had office positions and certainly organized parties and wrote the newsletter and various and a subject kinds of things. So I was right in the middle of all that was happening. And I had a good time with it. And I had a lot of boyfriends that I met within that. And there was a lot of drinking. No drinking when we had our children around. But there were a lot of parties just for the adults, just for the parents. And lots of drinking with that. And I was right there with all of them. I don't remember getting drunk that much. But I had an early hatred for getting to the place of vomiting. So if I would get close to that, I would stop. And that control, being able to stop when it got close to vomiting, plays a lot into my having a hard time recognizing that I had a problem with alcohol. Because if I wanted to stop, I could stop. I could stop when I was drunk. So how could I possibly be an alcoholic? If I could stop so easily, it it just didn't make any sense to me. So obviously, that wasn't an issue. And I saw people that didn't stop in some of those groups, and oh, poor them. I'm not sure whether we called them alcoholics then, or oh my God, that's someone I don't want to be around. That was probably more of it. I knew about Alcoholics Anonymous. My father had gone twice, and he'd come home, and in one of our family dinners. We ate dinner together frequently and talked about our days. I remember Daddy talking about having gone to AA meeting because he had a patient he wanted to recommend it to them. And he knew about it, but he didn't know enough to recommend it without having gone himself. So he went to a couple of meetings, and he told us about what they were about. So I saw them in a very positive light from what he shared with us. But I never thought of it as something for me. That was something for patients, not me. But those early suggestions were out there in my thought brainwaves and memories. I went on, and there were times when the alcohol, when I would get dizzy and I'd stop, my words would slur and I would stop. But I was aware that alcohol, that I, whatever it was that stopped me from drinking, I always went to a place where one of those kinds of things, either getting nauseated, word slurring too much, or getting dizzy would come along, and then I'd stop. But always something outside of me made me stop. And that happened every time I drank. 
there were a couple of times when I fell asleep when I was out on a date. I remember what I was doing up to the moment I fell asleep. I remember waking up and I was exactly in the same place that I'd been when I fell asleep. So I don't really think that I passed out or that I was in a, I may have passed out, but I wasn't in a blackout. I, I don't think I ever did any blackout behaviors, but I certainly passed out a, a few times, not a lot. I, I can probably count maybe even on one hand the number of times that I blacked out when other people were around, uh, or I mean, I fell asleep when other people were around, but I never was told of behavior that I did that I didn't remember. I've remembered behaviors since I got sober that I didn't used to remember. As old as I am, I'm remembering a lot of things that I did when I was young that uh, in my middle ages I didn't remember. Never understood that with my mother and my dad, how new memories came along. Now I'm getting new memories. Uh, but they certainly did happen. One time the police came to the swimming pool in the condo complex where we lived because, oh, there were probably about 10 of us that had decided to go swimming. And why go back to our own condo 10 room buildings away or, or 10 room, uh, apartments away? We were all in one big condo to get a swimming suit when we can go in naked. So we were all out in the pool with the lights all on, swimming naked. And some neighbor didn't like it. I don't know why. And they called the police and all of a sudden looked up and the pool is surrounded with policemen saying, get out now, put your clothes on now. And I, oh my God, my first year of teaching, I'm going to get fired. But nothing happened. They didn't even write us a ticket. They just had us get dressed and left us at that point. So very little of my behavior had consequences from it, particularly my alcoholic behavior. It just, it just didn't have consequences yet, yet being the operative word. number of things went on, and there's you know, this incident and that incident and this story and that story, and they're fun if we've got three hours. You don't want to listen to that many of my stories, and I don't think that my throat will hold up that long. So let's suffice it to say that during the years I was single, I took advantage of living in the early 70s. I'd had a hysterectomy, so I couldn't get pregnant. And my husband, my starter husband, who was gay and preferred men, I was on my way to, prefer, to prove that I was a desirable woman. And I needed as many men to want me as I could find. It had nothing to do with being in love with them or thinking they were the one. It was just that I had to be the most desirable woman at the party. And oftentimes I was. I was a pretty good flirt. And when my weight was where I wanted it, I was really pretty cute, if I do say so myself. Uh, others have said that, so I will take their word as well. And I knew how to flirt. I had mothers and a father that were good flirts, and I learned young very easily how to do that. I have no idea how many men I slept with. I have a calendar that I wrote their names on. One, <laughs> I may 
made a date with two men the same day, and they both arrived at the house at the same time. And they were both so angry, they left. So I ended up with a, out a date with either one of them. After that, I always wrote my dates on the calendar, and I would never accept a date without looking at my calendar. So uh, I did learn from mistakes. Not every mistake, but I did learn from that one. I did have a lot of boyfriends. Not too many that I thought about marrying. I think there were maybe two, three that were good enough that I thought they might be the one. But after about six months of dating, no, they weren't the one. Uh, I got bored. I saw other men that were more desirable. They wouldn't do as many things as I thought were fun. They all drank, but drinking wasn't the issue. They just weren't the right ones. Along with that, I got some therapy. I was always seeking because I I knew that something wasn't right. I wasn't happy enough, having fun, but wasn't deep within me really happy. I'd stopped going to church by that point. Really thought that, I wouldn't say that I hated church, but there was so much about it that it didn't seem true to me. With Seventh-day Adventists, they believed that in the Bible, it says 144,000. I have a hard time thinking that anyone realistically believes that number. But that's the number that was used. That only that number would get saved and have eternal life. Certainly, you had to be a seven-day Adventist. You had to go to church on Saturday, keep from Friday night to Saturday night holy, and only do God-related things during that 24 hours. You could not drink, you could not dance, you could not smoke, you could not do coffee. Even black tea you can use. You could do herb tea. Herb tea was okay. Decaffeinated tea or postum were okay, but not real coffee. Heavy spices you couldn't use. Couldn't use pepper. Might get you too stimulated, you know. I think I mentioned we couldn't smoke cigarettes. On and on the list went of what we couldn't do. The joke was the one thing we could do as girls is we could screw. So we were easy dates when we went to college because we were ready to go to bed with anyone. I don't know how true that was, but that was the joke about dating Seventh-day Adventist girls when I was growing up, that we were much easier makes than any of the rest of the religious girls because the only thing we could do was make love. Again, I wouldn't say that was true for all my girlfriends, but I've got some that I would say we all matched each other pretty much along that line. So we were great in college, uh, and certainly after college in the 70s. And it was easier to do that when we were drinking than when not. So I'm sure that alcohol played into the sexual behavior. I wasn't with any one person long enough that I owe amends to except one man. And for the life of me, I can't remember his last name. And his family was from back east. I don't remember what state. And he was leaving there to go back and to go back to medical school after we broke up. I did an unpleasant thing to him that I'm sorry about, that I would love to make amends if I had the means to contact him. but. Larry's a pretty common name. 
if I'm to make amends to him, my higher power will put him put him in my life. I presume, so I don't let that upset me. But it is one of those dangling ones in my background. And yes, I do have some sexual amends. Uh, I used to think that I didn't because I didn't hurt anyone. It was so mutual. But Larry, I I do. That that was one that it was it was all my doings and my fault, and I would love to make amends to him if I ever could find him or knew who he, what his last name was to find. I'd gotten to the place, I'd had enough therapy, I'd dated enough men that I really did know what I wanted. I'd calmed down a lot. I had, with the therapy really had centered me a lot more, and I met this man at work. And it's a fun story, but maybe you're going to have to call me or text me through Tara to find out the story. But we got married. We knew we wanted to marry each other within two weeks of dating. I said to him when I first met him, I was having so much fun. I didn't think that I could ever be monogamous. And a week later, I said, oh, I think I want to change my mind. I'd love to be monogamous with you. Two weeks into uh, the dating and my saying that and we were talking about getting married. He was just Mr. Right. Coming up uh, in October, he still is Mr. Right 48 years later. We've been through a lot together. But I adore him. He is just in more ways than I can imagine the very best. And right now, I didn't mention at the beginning that I'm going through cancer treatment. And prior to that, uh, this year, there's just no other way to, to say it. And, and Tara, I give you warning, you may want to blip this word out, but this last year has just been thoroughly fucked. Um, my sister, who I adored, died. I fell and broke my wrist in five places and had to have surgery in October. She died in June. And February, I had back surgery. We went on a get well cruise end of March, early April, and came home and got COVID. And at the second week of April, I was told that the CAT scans they had done on me the first week of April, just before I was diagnosed with COVID, that I had cancer, breast cancer. I'd had breast cancer 20 years ago, but I didn't think I was going to get it again, going 20 years without it, and now I have it again. So my husband, that I adore, has taken such good care of me through all of this. Boy, if I ever thought that I owed him pampering before, I do big time now. I used to say with, with he's someone that drinks and never gets drunk. His capacity is unbelievable. Daily drinker. Um, got the belly from drinking. But none of the behaviors. None of them. I've never seen this man drunk. Every so often, he forgets a few things, but he's 76 years old. And he's been drinking for years, so... Not surprising that he might forget something, but I forget things. Not that I'm not trying. He is so good to me. And when we do argue, 
oftentimes I'm the one that jumped on the hook. He'll put the hook out there. But if I don't jump on it, we don't have an argument. But if I jump on it, we can have a winding. So I've learned to change my behaviors throughout our marriage. And I just will mention them just in terms of the things that I've gone through sober. Both of my parents have died. Expected it because they were old. My dad died from a stroke. He was an invalid for two and a half years and finally died. My mother had Alzheimer's for seven years and finally got to the place that she couldn't recognize who I was. Although the very minutes before she, well, a day before she died, she was able to look at me and tell me that she loved me. My dog jumped up on the bed and she didn't like the dog there. So here she was not talking at all. She looked down and saw the dog and she said, get that dog off my bed. And I cracked up laughing and was kissing her neck and saying, I love you. I love you. And she looked straight in my eyes and said, I love you. And I believe that she knew that she was talking to me. Um, And I believe it was my dog that got language out of her. You know, you expect your parents to die, especially when they've had some long illnesses. Our son died when he was 31 from this disease. The house burned down a, a leak in the electricity or in the gas, caught the newspaper that was stacked around the water heater on fire. He was living in my mother-in-law's house, who was a hoarder. Had so much paper junk in the house that the fireman said it burned incredibly hot and incredibly fast. And our son was too loaded with drugs to get he and his girlfriend and the dog that was with them out of the house, and all three died in the fire. And we got one of those 6.30 in the morning horrible phone calls that no parent ever wants to receive. If he'd been sober, well, one, he wouldn't have been living in this disgusting house. Two, he probably would have been able to get out of the fire. But he wasn't sober. There were all kinds of drugs in his system. Um, I don't have the listing of it, and it really doesn't matter. None of my business uh, what he died from, but it was my stepson. My husband had a son. I had the daughter, and there was seven months between them. So we had two only children, almost the same age, that lived together some of the time. And you want to talk about a tough time. So at any rate, that was tough. Tough losing my son, much worse than losing my parents along the way. And then this last year, I already mentioned I had lost my sister. We lost several friends through COVID, a couple of really good friends. I lost my sponsor in COVID and several very dear friends and my son-in-law's best friend that we loved as well. We've been friends with him since kindergarten and they're in their 50s now. There was just a lot. And then all the things that have happened with my health. So it has been just a tough, tough year. And I feel so very blessed and so very fortunate that my husband has rallied and has taken care of me through all of it. I just am very blessed. And besides that, he's funny. He's intelligent. He loves the same kinds of things I do. He likes the physical activity. We both were skiers 
I was better than he was for a while. We loved camping. We did a lot of the same things. When I was looking at the list of what I loved about him and the things I didn't, the one thing I didn't like was that he smoked cigarettes, but he wanted to quit. So I thought, that I can do if he promises to smoke outside the house and uh, that he quits. Because everyone in the, the kids, me, everyone wanted him to quit. And he did. Oh, my. It's been at least 30 years since he smoked, uh, maybe even longer. And that one, they say, is a tough one to quit. So I've got a good guy. I'm really lucky. If I could change anything for his health, I wish he didn't drink as much. But that's his business, not my business. The Al-Anon programs that I have gone to, and that's where I started because we put our son into rehab when he was 16 for smoking our marijuana. And that's where I started with the 12-step programs. When I get a little crazy, I go to an Al-Anon meeting and get myself centered again. I think I mentioned earlier on that my best friend is in Al-Anon, and I met her at Al-Anon. So I keep myself pretty close to that as a program. When I got sober, and I can make it a long story or a short, and I'm going to make it a short story this time, I had been going to AA, my friend from work that I talked to on a daily basis, had invited me. I knew that she was in AA. I don't remember when she told me how I knew it, but she did. And we were so much alike. We talked daily at work with each other. She invited me. And I, I know I alluded to that I like self-growth things. So AA was right along with self-growth from my perception. I didn't see myself as stopping anything. Oh, I might stop the tranquilizers that I was still taking. I'd grown on from phenobarb to Valium, but I still took some. And I had intense migraine headaches. I feel like an elephant was crushing the left side of my body for three days straight. I was also drinking and doing some marijuana, especially with my stepson. If he was anywhere around, oh, my God, I had to, had to slide up because if I didn't, homicide might be created. He was probably one of the most difficult contrarian people that I had ever met. I swear that you could offer him $500 and he'd argue with you that it was either not enough or too much. It wouldn't matter what it was. There was always an argument. I discovered one day that he had drank all of my individually chosen bottles of wine for a trip up to the Napa Valley. There was one bottle left, and I grabbed hold of that bottle, and I was on my way into his bedroom, you know, charging up the stairs and ready to whack him over the head with the bottle. And my higher power stopped me dead in the center of the room. He had his barbells on the floor with the his clothes that were thrown all over the floor, covering up the barbell. And I smashed my toe into the end of that barbell so hard it broke. I swear my angels were looking after me because I had full intent of breaking that bottle over his head, and if he died, oh well, uh, you, to quote his favorite word, I, uh, absolutely murder in my eyes. Yep, no doubt about it. Uh, my higher power uh, let that barbell be directly in my path.
one of those God shots that happened along our lives. At any rate, ins and outs of living with tough children absolutely drove me to the program, both Al-Anon and AA. My first Al-Anon meeting, and here comes some of my arrogance, I was sitting next to this lovely, well-dressed woman, and she was quite open and friendly, and we chit-chatted a little bit. And I said to her, how long have you been coming to Al-Anon meetings? And she said, oh, about six years. And I, oh, my dear. I didn't say it. I thought it. Oh, my dear. You must really be sick. I'm going to get this in six months. (laughs) Well, I've been sober 35 years, and that was a good year and a half before I got sober. And I still go to Al-Anon meetings. Obviously, it had nothing to do with how quickly I learn. I have learned quickly, but there's still so much more to learn. But that's not what it's about at all. It's about being with your tribe and being with people that help you learn new things as you hear their shares. I I completely believe that that's one of the prime things that our 12-step programs give us is the stories of other people to help us in so many different ways, either to warn us or to give us empathy, to get us out of our head, to get me to stop obsessing about poor me. So many things that we get from hearing other people's stories, learning compassion, uh, all of those things seem to be part of it, as well as developing a community of friends that are there to take care of you. Cancer is, I keep weaving in because it has been so prominent right now, as I'm sitting here absolutely ball-headed. I'm getting a tiny bit of fuzz. It's shorter than a flat top that any boys ever wore in the 50s and 60s, but they're starting to get a few little pieces coming up. Having a tribe of friends that have come out of AA and Al-Anon, the amount of caring and help that I have had has just been overwhelming. I don't know that I've ever experienced such a a large outpouring of love. I didn't have it when we lost our son. I didn't have it when I went through cancer first time because I wasn't as involved. When I had cancer the first time, I was working full time and I just did not have the energy coming home from work and going to a night meeting. And I worked full-time in the school system. It doesn't really allow you much time to get to a meeting during the day. I had to drive an hour to get to work, generally, because of traffic in downtown L.A. So the idea of getting up even earlier than I already did, and I was getting up at 5 o'clock in the morning, wasn't something that I wanted to fit another meeting in by getting up at 4 o'clock in the morning especially since I'm a night owl. So I stopped going to meetings. And I didn't stop being part of AA. I didn't lose my sobriety. But I lost my tribe of friends. It just was too much on top of working and dealing with cancer. And weekends, oftentimes I had a treatment of chemo or radiation on Friday And the weekend, I just had to sleep. That was all I could do to survive. So I stopped going to meetings. I saw people on the program. My 
masseuse, my office partner, several other people that I saw throughout the week on a regular basis were in the program. So we talked program on a daily basis. I talked to my sponsor weekly. So I never felt that I left AA. I never left the meeting. I kept my sobriety, but I didn't keep the closeness, the care, the love that you get from going to regular meetings. What I'm getting now is mind-boggling. I mean, I couldn't, I don't have anything to compare it to other than the contrast to feeling I wasn't part of to now I'm the center. It's not just part of, I'm the center. It just blows my mind. The difference it makes being in the middle and being of service. That being of service to having sponsors and sponsees and working with the district meetings as a GSR, being a committee chair, all those things that I am so in the center of everything that I'm a different person. I just look at myself and say, how did this ever happen? It certainly wasn't what I grew up expecting to happen to me. Uh, And it's wonderful. Oh, God, I love it. It's the best. It's the best being the center of attention because you're loved, not because you're falling down drunk or because you're being stupid or all the other kinds of things that we could be when we were alcoholic. It comes from a place of being loved and being appreciated and being honored. Uh, What a blessing. What an incredible blessing I have received from being part of this program. Gives me the chills just thinking about it. It it just really, I I can't imagine living life any other way. And I want to skip some of the this story and that story because I can regale you for quite a while longer with some of the the things. I was known for taking off my clothes in inappropriate places. So I can go, I can regale you for quite a while. So we'll stop. Y'all come out and meet me. At any rate, what I want to spend time is one of the questions that I've heard Tara ask as I've listened to all of the previous podcasts is one of the things she frequently will say, what did you do to handle that situation? How did you use the steps in that? Or she also will say, what would you tell the newcomer? And I've got some of those newcomer things that I want to tell you about. In truth, that's probably the most important thing I can share with you. When I went to the first party sober, they were friends, friends home I'd been in before, and there was drinking, not a lot. For some reason, our friends were not as heavy drinkers as my husband and I were. And so oftentimes we didn't drink as much when we were there. And I had just gotten newly sober, so I wasn't too worried that anyone would bother me about drinking because they were a loving group of people and they were our supper club. Uh, We had a group of us that got together every two months and cooked a foreign cuisine together and we switched up partners of who we were cooking with. So at this party, about halfway through the party, I started feeling very anxious. 
I didn't have anyone there that wasn't drinking other than me. And the thought crossed my mind. My friends at the meeting had given me their their phone numbers. So I went into the bedroom, found the phone, sat on the bed, and started calling my friends. It was a Saturday night. I called 11 friends. This was in the days of answering machines, but long before cell phones. So I got 11 answering machines. I didn't talk to a single live person. But in going through those 11 people and leaving a message, I heard their voices. I recognized their voice. And I started feeling better. And by the 11th person, I was fine to go back in the party. I knew I could leave if I wanted. But I was fine to be back with my friends that were drinking, and I didn't need a drink. So my advice to any any of us, newcomer, uh, oldcomer, uh, experienced-comer, whatever we want to call ourselves, when you go to a social event or any kind of place where there's going to be drinking, what I do is I immediately get a glass of sparkling water. That's my preference. If they don't have sparkling water, if it's a bar, they've got soda water. If they don't have soda water, there's usually still water. If there's not still water, there's a sink with water in it. Or I could get apple juice or something else, but I prefer not to have all the sugar that juices give me. So I go to the sparkling water, and I like it in a pretty glass. So I'll ask to have it in a wine glass. Uh, that way I look like everyone else, and I'll have them put a a lime or a lemon or an orange slice in it. And no one has ever bothered me to ask me if I want a drink because I don't let that drink get below a third full. When it hits the third full, I go and get it filled back up again. I never let my glass get empty. So I don't have any need for anything else except the water that I've chosen to have. One of the best techniques to keep from picking up a drink. The other thing is if I'm sitting down at a dinner, which happens often in a wedding reception, I'll turn my glass upside down. And that's the sign to everyone that I don't happen to want the alcohol that's coming back. And I have my glass of water sitting there. And I may get two glasses of water, the regular water glass filled up as well as the sparkling one I'm drinking from. And people leave me alone oftentimes very respectfully alone. I've had many a conversation that has started out of that and seeing what I was doing. And I have two very dear friends that out of a conversation within the first year I was sober noticed it, and they were drinking friends, and they're still sober. So you never know when that's a chance to do a 12-step, but it certainly makes it easier at parties. So number one tip. And I do that, I've done it for 35 years now, so it, it still works. The other thing is I never leave without having my phone list of phone numbers. I know I can always leave. I've got an exit plan. My husband knows if I say I need to go home, I need to go home right then. I don't have to ask him another time. We have a word in our family. It's called Humphrey's Exit. Humphreys is the name of last name of my husband's uncle, and he always had 
When he was ready to go, he was ready to go, and the family better run duckling style right behind him. So we aren't quite that bad, but uh, if we say Humphrey's exit, that means I need to get out of here right now. Whether I'm tired, I'm sick, I've had enough alcohol around me, somebody's getting too drunk and is bothering me, it doesn't matter what the reason is. Everyone in the family honors that Humphrey's exit means we're leaving this minute. And we don't abuse it. Uh, We don't say that unless that's really what needs to be done for ourselves. And it doesn't have to be for sobriety. It just has to be, I've had enough party. Uh, We all honor that with each other and always have. Uh, That one came along before sobriety ever entered the house. But it's a good one to have, that you have a key word that everyone knows and honors. My husband, as I said, still drinks in the house. I have him keep it in a cupboard that's up too tall for me to comfortably reach. Every once in a while, he forgets to close it, which pisses me off. But I've decided that's such a minor thing that rather than getting pissed off, I just get a wood spatula and use it to close the door because it's too tall for me to reach. And I don't want to pull out a chair to do it. I just soon make it a little difficult. And that's not that difficult. But I don't want it to ever be easy for me to get to where the alcohol is. It truly doesn't bother me very much. I try not to look at it or keep count. Uh, Actually, it's when I put things in the trash and I see how many empty bottles in it that it's a reminder that he's been drinking a lot. Or I look at how big his tummy is and have looked at pictures lately and saw how skinny he was when I first met him, that it strikes me that I wish he didn't drink as much. But as I say, it's not my business. It doesn't affect our comfort of being together. It doesn't affect his responsibility in earning a living. He never has missed a day of work for it. I've never seen him actually drunk other than two times when he combined pills that he should not have. The other things that I've done, if I start feeling depressed or sad, I get busy. I get busy in the house. I read something in our literature. I almost always have a project of some kind. Uh, I need to edit something or I need to send out a notice to some committee I'm working with. With being a GSR uh, representative, I needed to write up my notes and send it out to a committee I was working with on a special project. There was one, one group that I'm the GSR in that there were funny little arguments coming up. and. To me, that's what our traditions are about. In our group meetings, in all of our meetings, we have the 12 traditions. And they are written to help us get along in the group and for unity. So when there's bickering over, and I put it in quotes, rules, because we really don't have rules, but oftentimes that's what's being referred to as imaginary rules, I'll go to the traditions. And if it's not in the tradition, then I identify it as such. But we use the techniques of the traditions to look at the issue and say, is this something that we want to include in our group guidelines? Or is it something that we really don't want in our guidelines and that this is something that's totally unnecessary? Is it only an issue to one person? And can we do something so that it doesn't become an issue? 
for? What can we do to solve the problem? And using the traditions to help get that unity, recognizing that the minority has the opportunity to state their concerns at the very end in case we need to change our opinion. It's amazing how we solve problems in groups. And I had one just recently that way. And I was writing, one of the things I needed to do, I was down with this cancer. And so I got up and I wrote up a summary of what it was. So I had a written summary to hand out to everyone in the meeting when we got together to go over the reports from this ad hoc committee that we had formed. That got me out of my depression. I stopped even thinking what it was I was obsessing about. Uh, usually it's a poor me. Thinking about something else, doing something that's of service, calling someone when I get in that gets me out very quickly. I have a sponsor that is ridiculously busy, kind of like I was before I got cancer. We have an understanding that if I need her, I'm to write a 911 email and she'll get back to me uh, as soon as she possibly can. And I don't worry about it. But I have a number of other friends. I have sponsees that I can talk with and see what their needs are. I have other friends that I can call, and I get on that phone. I, I'm not always a daily caller. My sponsees call me. But I have no problem with calling out to people and to people that I know in the meeting. And sometimes I call someone I've never called before, but I know they have a unique perspective on whatever it is I'm dealing with. I know that because I go to meetings. I wouldn't know that if I didn't go to meetings. So that's one of the tools that I find very useful. I've got another one that I find useful. I sing. I'm not a singer. My father was, my sister was, but I didn't get voice lessons. So I have fun singing to myself in the car, but I sing. And I love listening to music, and I love dancing. I'm not a dancer. Remember, I was raised seven dads, and I, so I didn't learn how to dance, didn't have lessons until I was 60 years old, and I learned how to tango. I gave my husband, for a birthday present, for his 60th birthday, tango lessons. And then we went to Argentina for two weeks tango dancing. So, off the topic. So, at any rate, those kind of things, dancing singing, filling myself with music in some way gets me out of being depressed. I'm not a depressed person that goes into serious long depression. My depressions have always been fairly short unless there's something that has happened. I was depressed for quite a bit when my sister died, but that's a situational depression. That doesn't worry me, although I still call people with that one. One of my Al-Anon friends said to me, write. I don't like to write. I know that we're told to write. I don't like to write. I write for work. I write for pleasure. Writing when I'm sad, mm, I'll do it. But it's not something that I go to usually by choice. I have to be in quite a bit of pain before I do it by choice. I've, I've used that technique with my husband. Oh, it's been years since I've used it. But generally, I've given him the letter. I've learned now that 
it's better if I don't give it to him, that I just get it all out, and then I don't have to worry so much about the words I choose to use, and I can get more junk out if I don't give him the letter. But this one friend said when I was so depressed about my sister, she said, write about her. I thought I would write about the things I missed about her, the wonderful things about her. I sat down and started writing, and I listed out 24 bullet points of things that she had done that hurt my feelings. I was so surprised. One, I was surprised there were that many. But two, I was surprised that's where my brain took me. So I think writing's a much better tool to use than I've given it credit for. So I put that now on my list of things to do. I probably still need to be told when to do it. But it's one that if I'm told, I will do it. And if it crosses my mind, that's my higher power telling me to do it. And so I will do it. I believe in higher powers telling us things to do as thoughts that cross our mind. As long as they're not harmful to me or anyone else, I know that they have a strong likelihood they're coming from my higher power. Because I keep in touch with her much more often than I used to. So I can trust the things that come into my mind that that I know have benefit, even if I don't like them, as being from my higher power. And yes, you did hear me right. I referred to her in the feminine. I had too much of an issue with my father's anger, with the church's bombastic going to hell, uh, with the male patriarch and the male God and the male this and the male that. And here's a male, there's a male, everywhere's a male, male. That mine is a loving, nurturing female higher power, often taking the form of an angel, but sometimes the form of some of the goddesses, frequently in the form of color, I get infused with my higher power. And she is just the best thing there is, and she makes me happy. And I feel loved by my higher power. Uh, That's what works for me. The religious Oh, at Christmas time, I enjoy hearing the music. Enjoy the music at Easter. A, a good requiem mass is lovely. But the sermons that are hellfire and brimstone, oh, save me. Not for me at all. That isn't love. That's torture and hate and anger. And that's not what my higher power is. And sometimes I have issues in meetings when people refer to God, He. And my skin starts to crawl when that's all they say. Uh, and the the naughty in me will come up, and I will raise my hand quickly and make some reference to God, she. And see some of the uh, old-timers, uh, and yes, they're old-timers when they're like that, see them uh, twist and turn and uh, think that, oh, isn't she awful? And it makes me giggle. Seeing one of them squirm is just more fun than anything. Yes, I still have the naughty in me. I don't know that the naughty in me and the mischievous in me will ever go. It's too much fun. Just as long as I don't do it out loud and hurt someone in the process is where I draw my boundary. Ah, boundaries, another one. Boundaries. I'm a firm believer in boundaries. 
when I retired, I made the decision that I was not going to be around toxic people anymore. And that sometimes they're toxic people that I, I might run into often, but I can set boundaries around them. I can set my own internal boundary because maybe what they're doing is none of my business and I just need to get myself away. Or I can set boundaries that I did, um, and I'll share this story and then I think that I will bring myself to a close. When my father would call on the phone, or I'd call my mother and she'd say that thing that made me go, ugh, is don't you want to talk to your dad? He's standing right here. I go, ugh. He'd retired and he was around a lot more. So, of course, I'd have to say hello to Daddy. And he'd get on the phone, and practically the first thing out of his mouth was, Carla, you know what you should be doing, which meant I should be going to the Seventh-day Adventist church every week. And I had no intention of ever going, and I didn't want to lie to my father. He was One of his big things was being honest. And I believe that. I think it's important to be honest. I just had my breath taken away. I'm looking at my computer, and it just came up with the picture that my dad, of a house my dad built uh, that paid for his medical school. <laughs> Ooh, I'm talking about daddy, and his pictures come up. <laughs> I'm scared. Okay. Okay. So I said to him, Daddy, when you talk the way you are right now, it makes me sad, and it makes me want to cry, and I don't want to talk to you. I love you, but I cannot deal with what you are talking about. So if you do that again, I will say to you, Daddy, I love you. I'll talk to you later, and I'm going to hang up the phone. There was this big pause. You could just see his brain clicking through it. and. He said, okay, and I gave him another subject to talk about, like picking up the locomotive and turning it 45 degrees. You know, how are the horses or some such thing? He picked up on the topic, and we talked for a few minutes, and then he said, now, Carla, I just have to say, you know what you should do. And I said, Daddy, I love you very much. I'll talk to you later, and I hung up the phone. And I fell apart. I just knew he was going to turn on my mother. I knew he was going to explode. I called my sister. I called my aunt. Please call and talk to mother. He's going to be yelling at her. Please get mother out of harm's way. He never hit her, but he would, oh man, would he still yell at her up until he had his stroke. So about three phone calls like that. And I calmed down and hung up and said, okay. Got to turn it over. There's nothing I can do about it. Turn it over. And nothing happened. Several days later, I talked to my mother. Nothing. I didn't bring it up, but I knew that she would bring it up if you said something to her. Nothing. Several years later, I asked mother if he'd said anything to her. He never mentioned it. The next time we talked, he said, Carla, you, and it was that tone of voice, and he says, oh, I can't talk about that. And then I offered, 
how are the Dodgers doing? Are you watching the Dodgers baseball game? And I changed the subject for him. And we went on to have a year of pleasant conversation before he had his stroke. I highly recommend putting boundaries. You don't have to cut everyone off. If you put boundaries around the one little piece that you don't like or that hurts you, then you can talk about some other things. And when that little piece comes up, I love you. Bye. You do a Humphrey's exit. I can't tell you the blessing that I feel that I had that time to talk with my dad. And he shared wonderful things with me during that time. One of the things was that he thought that I was prettier and smarter than my big sister. I wouldn't have heard that if I hadn't put a boundary. That was kind of nice. A little naughty, but kind of nice to hear. So I've done pretty well. Uh, and um, my daddy's proud of me. And he loves me. I wouldn't have had that if I hadn't put a boundary so I'm a strong believer in boundaries. They've given me very precious memories and precious experiences because I put a boundary up to take care of me. So on that, I'm going to close and say I've got lots more. You can't help but when you've been sober for 35 years to have lots of experiences. And I'm looking forward to another 35 years. I'm going to be one of those broads that's kicking around well into my hundreds and still being able to find things that tickle me and that make me feel naughty. And I love every second of it because I'm sober. Thank you for letting me share, Tara. It's been such a treat. Thank you, Carla. I might have to split this one into two episodes. So you might. I'm, I looked at what the time was, and I thought, "Oh my god, <laughs> that's okay." I mean, it's thirty-five years of experience, and it was enjoyable to just listen to you tell your story and go back there with you. I think there's only one question that did not get covered, and that was you getting kicked out of an AA meeting. I. So glad you remembered the same one that I knew that I had forgotten. Okay, so here's the story. I had been going to the AA meeting with my friend and who I called my sponsor for six months. I had, I knew it was an alcoholics meeting. Everyone identified themselves as an alcoholic. I truly did not believe I was an alcoholic because I could control it. I if it wasn't good wine, I wouldn't drink it. I didn't drink hard mixed drinks because it had the sugar in it. Now, I would drink tequila with fresh orange juice, but it had to be good tequila. It couldn't be cheap tequila. I was snooty. It was probably the best word to describe my drinking. But I could control it. So I really didn't think I was an alcoholic. I identified myself as an addict because of all the pain medicines I was taking for the migraine headaches, and I couldn't quit that. And when I went to the doctor and said, put me on something else, he gave me Demerol. Turns out I'm allergic to Demerol. And the medicine I was taking, the psychiatrist told me that with as much as I was taking, and the doctor was giving it to me as needed, that I that codeine was changing into morphine in my system. 
and that frightened me. So I was in trouble with the pill. Um, I was in trouble with the tranquilizers and marijuana function kind of the same way that tranquilizers did for me because when I would get upset, I would think I'm not going to do use them. And the next thing I knew, I was lighting up a joint. I would light up a joint to go to work. I can't even believe now that I did that. I was teaching school, and I would light up a joint before I would go to school. Uh, one year, I started off at a school with uh, smoking a joint on the way in so I wouldn't kill my stepson and uh, using perfume to cover it up. Well, then I thought, I can't stop doing that because I will have a different smell to the perfume and people will know that I'm doing something. Oh, isn't that great thinking? At any rate, I couldn't give up the marijuana and yet I put my son in the drug hospital for it. So I felt that I needed to stop it and I couldn't put up, give up the pills. When I went to those kind of meetings, 12 step meetings, they didn't fit. I went with my people. Uh, it wasn't that our stories were all that different. They were a little alike, but, oh, my God, these people were, you know, 10 years younger, 20 years younger that were doing marijuana. And I don't know at that time if there was anything for pills. Uh, you know, we're talking back in the uh, 80s, and there weren't near the number of 12-step uh, meetings that there are now. So AA felt right. There was everything that they said in it, I believed. It, it just fit perfectly with my thinking and what I wanted to do. And the tw doing the 12 steps and doing the inventory made perfect sense to me. And certainly having a sponsor was wonderful. But I didn't think I was an alcoholic because I could control the alcohol. So I, I identified as an addict. Well, after six months, in one meeting, some of the ladies said, and my sponsor was not there and was not aware of it, but they said they'd taken a group conscience. And uh, since I wasn't identifying as an alcoholic, I needed to find a different meeting. And they would help me find one that fit my needs. But I didn't belong in that meeting since it was for uh, people that wanted to stop alcohol. And... I was practically struck dumb, if you can imagine me not being able to talk. Uh, and so I left. But on the way out, I had heard someone share mm, two or three weeks earlier in their sobriety story this particular piece. What I heard was they prayed to their higher power, so I did as well that my higher power would make it obvious to me that I was an alcoholic, that I didn't think I was, that if I was, my higher power would make it obvious to me. I got in my car, and I was surprised. I wasn't depressed. I wasn't upset. I wasn't angry with the women. Now, when they first told me in the meeting, I felt a jolt of anger. But by the time I had prayed that prayer, walking out the driveway, I got into my car, I wasn't angry. I just knew that I'd prayed a prayer and I didn't believe anything would come from it, but I'd done that. Drove off. Two weeks later, we had a party at our house 
and I served champagne before dinner. And then at dinner, we served wine, and we had two or three bottles of wine. And I was getting up to open another bottle of wine. And my husband turned to me, and he said, Carla, I think what we need is coffee. Now, my husband and I drank the same amount at that time. If anything, he might have drank a little more. But we were both pretty equal in it. And I was not ready for coffee. I was ready for more wine. And not only was I ready for it, I really wanted more wine. And it was that intense, I want, that was so startling to me. I made coffee. and. I didn't open the bottle of wine that night after the company left. And the next day, I didn't have anything to drink. For the most part, I wasn't a day drinker, uh, unless we were watching a football game or outside at a party or something. There were plenty of times, but let's not kid myself. Um, But if I was, yeah, no, I was drinking a lot during the morning. Forget that one. Only going to work kept me not drinking in the morning. And I did everything else, so what big deal is that? Uh, At any rate, I didn't have anything. And Monday, I called my, by then she was my sponsor, even though I wasn't doing AA. I was still doing the big book. And um, I called her, and I said, Mimi, I'm in trouble. Are you going to the meeting next week, this week? And she said, yeah, I'm going Tuesday night. Why? And I said, I need to go. Can I ride with you? I said, of course, Carla. Not a problem whatsoever. What happened? And I told her. And I said, I'm not going to have anything to drink today. I'm not taking any pills today. I'm not smoking any marijuana. I'm doing nothing today. I just will call me every hour to let me know how you're doing. So I stayed home from work. I slept. I called my sponsor. I took hot baths, hot mineral baths. I put every kind of bubble bath uh, that had uh, lavender and all the rest of the good smelling stuff into the, into the tub. And I drank hot tea, hot herbal tea. I didn't even drink coffee that day. Didn't eat any sugar that day. I really cleansed my body out. And if you're offended by these kinds of things, close your ears. I used my vibrator. And I made it through the day with absolutely nothing that I was addicted to. And the next day I went to the meeting with Mimi. And I've been sober since that day. It's one of those wonderful miracles that happen in our program. There's no question in my mind that my beautiful higher power wasn't the one saying to me, you don't need it anymore. It's time. It's just one of those beautiful miracles that happen in our program. So that's how I got kicked out. And I am thankful to those beautiful women who kicked me out, but gave me six months to learn about the program and to learn about the love that's in the program. If they had done that the first day, 
I don't know that I'd ever come back. I probably would have died from this disease. So I blessed them that they gave me the time. And then they said, enough. For more information, read the first 164 pages of the Big Book of Alcoholics Anonymous or visit keepcomingback.net.